And now for introductions. Today is the 2021 Florence Edelson Memorial Lectureship, which was established in 2002 by Helene and George Edelson to honor the life and memory of George's mother. Florence Edelson's husband, Dr. Jesse Edelson, was a St. Vincent physician for many years. And this lectureship seeks to bring an exceptional educational program each year, often with a broad lens of how we define and promote health and wellness. And on that note, I am absolutely delighted to introduce this year's speaker, Dr. Howard Frumkin, a physician and epidemiologist, Professor Emeritus of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Washington, and currently the Senior Vice President of the Trust for Public Land, where he leads that organization's strategic efforts to assemble evidence and drive evidence into policy and practice, focusing on priorities of health, equity, climate action, and community. Previously, he was head of the Our Planet, Our Health Initiative at the Wellcome Trust, Dean of the University of Washington School of Public Health, Director of the National Center for Environmental Health at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Professor and Chair of Environmental and Occupational Health at Emory University. Dr. Frumkin's career has focused on health aspects of climate change, the built environment, energy policy, nature contact, and sustainability. He is author or co-author of over 300 scientific journal articles and chapters, as well as 10 books, including Wellbeing well and Sustainability, forthcoming in 2022. It is a tremendous honor to have Dr. Frumkin bring his energy and his expertise. I note he was elected a member just yesterday announced of the National Academy of Medicine. This is considered one of the highest honors in the fields of health and medicine and recognizes individuals who have demonstrated outstanding professional achievement and a commitment to service. Thank you, Dr. Frumkin, for joining us today at the Providence community, and I will turn it over to you. Laura, thank you very much, and good morning, everybody. It's quite an honor to be here. I, I'm uh, speaking to you not from uh, Portland, but from Seattle. In fact, let me begin by acknowledging that I'm speaking from traditional unceded land of the Coast Salish peoples here in the Seattle area. And with respect and gratitude, I honor the land itself and those tribes. Well, my topic today, as you saw from the title slide, is planetary health, which is a, an emerging field and I think a very interesting and productive way to frame a lot of our thinking about the relationship between human health and bigger issues. So let me invite you to begin by, uh, even if you are a clinician, channeling your inner historian and your inner ecologist to do the kinds of thinking that I'd like to invite you to join me in. I'm going to take you through eight core concepts to begin with and then work a few examples and I'll close by bringing it all home to uh, to the clinical level. So the eight concepts are the great acceleration, deep time, the Anthropocene, planetary boundaries, the donut, ecosystem services, polycrisis, and emergency. Probably some of these are familiar and some may be new. Well, our story starts back here in the mid 19th century. This is a picture of the bottom of a Scottish coal mine. Now, by this time, coal was in pretty large scale production in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, and it was driving the Industrial Revolution. I like this particular picture because the gentleman uh, saw fit to put on his white wig 
descend into the coal mine where he is lighting a pipe or maybe it's a firecracker, uh, despite the presence of uh, combustible gases all around him. So this is a nice example of the reckless insouciance which would characterize energy policy for some time to come. 1860, a coal mine. Or maybe the story starts here. This is almost the same time, 1859. This is the Drake well, the first commercial oil well in the United States. And this marked the beginning of large scale commercial production of petroleum. Well, put those two things together, oil and coal, and eventually add natural gas to them. And what you can see here is an enormous ramping up after a lag period of just a couple of decades of the consumption of energy worldwide. And you can see that as you bring it up to the present, almost all that energy that we're using consists of the fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, an amazing source of concentrated energy available to humanity to use. Well, that energy over the last couple of centuries in turn drove and permitted an amazing ramping up of the human population. You can see that the population on the planet was relatively stable since the last ice age about 10, 12,000 years ago. But in the last few hundred years, the population has expanded enormously. It took a lot of energy to enable that to happen. Along with the population, up went our economic activity. This is annual world GDP, and you can see the same pattern. In fact, this curve will become familiar. So you can see that economic activity skyrockets, both because of the growth of population and because of all the energy available to drive economic activity. So by almost any metric, the human enterprise has expanded uh, in the last couple of centuries in an unprecedented way. This slide shows the use of water, the travel, fertilizer consumption, plastic production, paper production. We could show pictures of the a number of McDonald's outlets, almost any metric you could think of. And this great acceleration picture is what emerges. Now that has been in many ways a great time to be alive. We've seen illiteracy decline worldwide. We've seen poverty decline, although too many people still remain in poverty. Child survival has increased. Life expectancy has increased. So in many ways, this has been a beneficial period for humanity. But it comes at a cost, and the cost is borne by our planet. Now, I want to just take a couple of minutes to put planetary changes in perspective. If our planet were scaled to the size of a soccer ball, then the entire biosphere would be as thick in proportion as a layer of cellophane. It's a very thin layer surrounding the planet. And we are a small part of life on Earth in that biosphere. This is a cartoon showing all of life on Earth uh, scaled according to carbon content. It's a good way to measure life. You can see that plants represent something like 90% of life on Earth. And the animal kingdom is this little two gigatons of carbon here. If we blow up the animal kingdom, we can see that much of it consists of insects. A lot of it is fish. And right down here, a small percentage of a small percentage of life on Earth is humanity. Outweighed, I might mention in passing by the livestock we grow to feed ourselves. That's a topic to which we may return. We are a small part of life on Earth. Not only that, we're late arrivals to life on Earth as well. This is a timeline of the entire planet's history from the creation of the planet four or five billion years ago to the rise of life about two billion years ago. Homo sapiens arises about 200,000 years ago. 
And it's only been 10,000 years since the end of the last ice age that we emerged from being hunter-gatherers and began living in towns and cities, growing crops, writing things down, making PowerPoint presentations, and so on. In fact, uh, in the words of John McPhee, the great nature writer, consider the Earth's history as the old measure of the English yard, the distance from the king's nose to the tip of his outstretched hand, one stroke of a nail file on his middle finger erases human history. <clears throat> so given that we are a very small part of life on Earth and very late arrivals to the party, you might think that we would have little ability to change the very planet. Uh, but remember how fragile and small that biosphere is, and you won't be surprised to learn that that great acceleration has fundamentally changed the planet. We've changed atmospheric chemistry, levels of carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane. That has resulted in changes in surface temperature, in the pH of the oceans, in the use of land globally, and in a great decline in biodiversity. These changes are so far-reaching, indeed, that uh, Earth scientists have postulated that we've entered a new geological epoch, which they call the Anthropocene beginning something around the onset of the Industrial Revolution in the 17th or 18th century, characterized by humanity being the prime determinant of many biogeophysical processes on Earth. So here is geological history coming up this column, and then the very thin layer on top representing the Anthropocene. Now that thinking has given rise to another concept, which is the concept of planetary limits. This is an iconic diagram from the, the planetary literature. The idea here is that there is a safe zone here in the green center, and there are boundaries that we should be careful about transgressing. If we do get into the red danger zone, then we risk irreversible changes to the planet. The planetary boundaries are shown around the outside, ocean acidification, loading of the atmosphere with aerosols, depletion of ozone. Novel entities means introducing new chemicals that are non-biodegradable into the uh, biosphere. Climate change, this is biodiversity and so on. So the notion here is that if we transgress those planetary boundaries, we may change the fundamental state of the planet and therefore change the conditions in which human civilization has thrived for the last 10 or 12,000 years. Now, this is not uh, an unchallenged concept. Some people point out that there aren't really bright lines in the sand between what's safe and unsafe. And some people point out that many of these changes, like the flows of nitrogen and phosphorus, happen more on a regional level than on a global level. All good points. But the basic notion that there are limits to what we can do on this planet without really mucking it up is probably a sound notion. Now for us health professionals looking at a picture like this, another question arises and that is, where are the people? Wouldn't you expect to see people at the center of a diagram like this? Because after all, we're talking about these planetary changes in the context of what they mean for people. So let's redraw the picture, it's the very same picture here. And it shows that ecological ceiling with all of these domains around the outside and the concept of overshoot that we shouldn't transgress that limit. But now we've opened up the center and we can put into it human existence, the social foundation with all of the needs that people have, food, water, energy, gender equality, social equity, political voice, and so on. So that space in the middle between the floor below which we shouldn't fall 
and the ceiling above which we shouldn't transgress. That's called a safe and just space for humanity, a, a regenerative and distributive economy in the words of Oxford economist Kate Raworth. So this is donut economics. This is the donut. And we can only wish that she had used a bagel or something a little less unhealthy than a donut for her metaphor. Now, a related concept and a concept that gets at the question of how those planetary functions uh, support and help humans is the concept of ecosystem services shown here. This comes from a, a global effort called the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. And the notion here is that functioning planetary systems provide us with a lot of the things we need to live and thrive. Four kinds of ecosystem services, supporting services such as forming soil, provisioning services such as giving us food and water, regulating services, think of the way a mangrove swamp protects a coastal area from flooding, and cultural services, aesthetic, spiritual, and we would probably put health in here too, our ability to go recreate uh, in a forest. Now, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which postulated this notion of ecosystem services, also mapped those services to human health and well-being. And it's a little bit of a complicated picture now, but what I want you to see is that from each of these domains, provisioning, regulating, cultural, arrows go over to the basic constituents of well-being, security, the materials we need for a good life, health, good social relations, and larger values such as freedom of choice and action. All these arrows that come to health are here. And actually, this is an older diagram. In, in the last few decades, we've come to understand better and better how our well-being, including especially our health, depend on the various ecosystem services. Just one more complicated picture to get at this concept. This is a picture from the UN Environment Program. And let me walk you through it. The, the green red scale here shows healthy planet and the blue scale shows healthy people. So we're seeing that pair of arrows in several domains, atmosphere, land, water, oceans, biodiversity. And what I want you to notice is that as we move on the planetary scale from healthy to unhealthy, human impacts track right along with that, indicating that as these planetary systems degrade, human health is threatened. So for example, in the atmosphere, as we degrade the atmosphere through household cooking, the burning of biofuels, putting pollutants into the air, urban air pollution, greenhouse gases, then we get a death from respiratory, cardiovascular, and related causes. And that pairing applies in each of these domains of Earth systems. Again, highlighting the notion that you can't have healthy people without a healthy planet. And as planetary function degrades, so does human health. So where does that leave us? We're, we're living on a planet that is fundamentally different than the planet our grandparents inhabited. The changes are really happening that fast. The uh, planetary changes are shown in this picture. I've mentioned many of them. Climate change, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, changes in the way land has been used on a planetary scale, and so on. Now that is daunting, but as if that's not daunting enough, all of those changes exist in the context of social and demographic challenges that are also emerging, partly the result of that rapid population growth that I showed you earlier. We've got a larger population, it is aging, 
and we are globally connected. This is a small picture, but you can see these thousands of green lines indicating airline flights on a typical single day, binding the world together, enabling, for example, the spread of infectious diseases. We've got shameful levels of poverty, albeit lower than in the past. We've got income inequality giving rise to a lot of resentment and, uh, and unrest. We've got racism and discrimination that persist. In the um, government and public discourse domain, we've got a lot of disinformation out there. We've seen that during COVID, the rise of populist movements and authoritarian governments around the world. And finally, in the health arena, we've got not only the pandemic and the specter of future outbreaks of infectious diseases globally, but underlying that, a pandemic of non-communicable diseases and a pandemic of social isolation and loneliness that in turn contributes to a number of aspects of ill health. So I've showed you now two gloomy slides, each with 12 challenges on them, as if they operate independently, but of course they don't, as signified by this iconic photograph of a COVID warning sign in California last summer being burned up by one of the wildfires triggered by climate change in California. So the best way to conceptualize this global situation we're faced with is probably something like this. All of these challenges, each connected to the others, exemplifying the first law of ecology that everything is connected to everything. Okay, one more aspect of our planetary challenge to health, and that is the matter of timing. So this is a picture of biodiversity loss. And what I want you to see is how rapidly it's accelerating. The loss of bird species, other vertebrate species, mammals. This is a picture of insect population declines in recent decades, accelerating very rapidly. Here's a picture of Antarctic sea ice, and the loss of that sea ice is accelerating rapidly with climate change. Here's a picture of glacier loss, rapidly accelerating. Here's a picture of weather-related catastrophes. They are rapidly accelerating. So in each of these and in other domains I could show, that pattern of rapid change, accelerating change, so that the rate of change is faster each decade than the decade before, is a reality. Uh, this is a picture of what are called tipping points. These are Earth system functions that, if they change from one state to another, can trigger irreversible damage and threats to civilization as we know it. So the loss of the Amazon rainforest, the loss of, uh, of coral reefs in various parts of the world, a slowdown of the Atlantic circulation. These tipping points are now seen, uh, we're told by the Earth scientists, as increasingly likely. And the last piece of timing before I wrap up this timing discussion is shown here. This is a picture of various pathways that would limit global warming to one and a half degrees. Each color represents a different scenario based on different assumptions of technology development and policy change and population growth and so on. The, the, those who model climate change and the responses to climate change routinely make models like this, each with a different pathway. And any of these pathways would get us down to the point where we would keep global warming to one and a half degrees. Notice that each of the pathways shown here presupposes that we make dramatic reductions in our CO2 emissions starting now, dropping by about 50% within 10 years and dropping to net zero by 2050. But we're not doing that. Emissions continue to rise, as shown here, 
These are the various countries of the world. Uh, you can see that a number of countries, here's China, here's the rest of developing Asia, and in, except for India, emissions are rising very fast with economic development. So rapidly accelerating signs of degradation of planetary systems and uh, urgency about dealing with them because they're happening so fast and uh, taking us to the very verge of irreversible changes. So that comprises the final concept I wanted to convey today, which is that this is an emergency. Well, all of that is mind boggling. It, it's hard even to think about this stuff. And we'll come back to the emotional responses that we have toward the end. But in the meantime, let's talk about a, a scientific and medical approach to all of this. And this is the concept of planetary health, which is my topic for today. Uh, planetary health is an idea that was proposed back in 2014 uh, by an editorial in The Lancet. And then a commission was formed and that commission issued its report a year later in 2015, uh, proposing the concept of planetary health. It's been a rapidly growing field. There are a group called the Planetary Health Alliance formed the next year. Academic units around the world uh, have sprung up in the last few years. And we now have a couple of textbooks in the field. So it's actually uh, a field. So what is planetary health? Well, here's the uh, formal definition. I won't uh, inflict on you the reading of it, but what I want you to notice is that it is a definition of a paradigm that combines human systems and natural systems. And so the, the, the bottom line is it is the health of human civilization and the state of the natural systems on which it depends. I like to think of planetary health as a scientific framework that is people-centered, distinguishing it, say, from ecology. It is systems-based, distinguishing it from a lot of reductionist biomedical science. It is upstream-facing. It looks at root causes. It is committed to equity because there's a recognition that you can't solve the planetary problems without also solving some of the social problems. It is future-oriented. We're thinking a lot about scenarios in the future and how we, uh, we, we uh, arrange the best scenarios. It is solutions-driven and it inspires hope. And so in these ways, although sometimes it may seem like just um, old wine and new bottles, it's actually a different and new scientific paradigm. Well, how does planetary health thinking look in practice? Let me work a few examples and then I'll wrap up by coming back home to a more clinical application. Uh, we can think about many of the domains of our life, the energy we use, the stuff we buy and consume, the places we inhabit, the cities and towns and buildings we live in, and the food we eat through the lens of planetary health. And I'm going to work a few examples. Uh, if we have time, maybe one from each of these domains. So let's start with energy. Uh, I, I proposed early on that energy historically has been a driver of much of the um, that the dramatic change in human history and its trajectory in the last couple of centuries. And that brings to mind climate change, which is one of the biggest of the planetary changes, and one of the ones with which we're all most familiar. Now, I showed you a graph earlier of energy use, and it looks a lot like this graph. This is a graph of CO2 emissions, and that tracks right along with energy use. As long as most of your energy comes from the combustion of fossil fuels, when you oxidize carbon-based molecules, of course, you get carbon dioxide. So here's CO2 emissions. And as you emit the CO2 over time, you get rising CO2 levels in the atmosphere from a pre-industrial uh, uh, equilibrium of 280 parts per million up to well over 400 where we are now. 
Now, climate change, as you're well aware, is a, a, a very big multidimensional threat to human health and well-being. I usually inventory the impacts of climate change on health with a picture something like this, about 10 or so pathways, the direct effects of heat causing a number of health impacts that we learned about in medical school, from heat rash to heat stress to heat stroke, but also lots of farther reaching health impacts. Uh, the impacts of sea level rise, severe weather, droughts, hurricanes, and so on. And I don't need to tell anybody in Portland about the impacts of both heat and severe weather over the last couple of years. The impacts of air pollution related to climate change in that the root cause of climate change, the combustion of fossil fuels, is also the source of much of our air pollution. But in addition to that, climate change causes worse air pollution by driving the production of ozone. Uh, warm weather, high temperatures drive ozone formation in the atmosphere. Worsening allergies because the allergy season becomes longer with uh, warming weather and many of the plants that produce allergens such as ragweed and poison ivy become more productive and more allergenic under high CO2 scenarios. Uh, worsening chemical exposures because climate change uh, mobilizes chemicals from storage depots. Infectious diseases, uh, both vector-borne diseases such as malaria, dengue, uh, and Lyme because of impacts of climate change on vector biology and on the organisms themselves, and waterborne diseases because it's hard to maintain clean water and clean food under circumstances of warm weather, and organisms such as cholera thrive. Threats to the water and food supply because of agricultural impacts and because, interestingly, high CO2 diminishes the nutrient values of many food crops. Uh, mental health impacts, which you may be feeling now as I go through this litany, and resource scarcity and competition. The fact that people may need to be fighting over resources, people will need to migrate from where they live to safer places. And all of those things are typically accompanied by uh, disruption and by threats to human health. Well, that's a lot. Let's just uh, take a planetary health look at one of those, heat, which is in some ways the simplest. Now, we all remember the sequence of heat-related health impacts, uh, heat uh, uh, rash, heat stress, all the way up to heat stroke, which can be fatal. But that's not all that heat does. <clears throat> heat waves can have a substantial population impact. 70,000 deaths during the 2003 European heat wave, 54,000 in Russia during the 2010 heat wave, thousands per year every summer in India during the last decade or two. And this summer, of course, we lost an estimated 1,200 people here in the Pacific Northwest from our, our heat wave. But heat does more than just kill people, either from diagnosed heat stroke or from cardiovascular causes, which are the most common cause of death. Heat also increases violence. We have some evidence, a little less definitive, that heat increases self-harm, suicide rates rising during heat waves. Uh, heat triggers the onset of renal disease, especially in workers who have to work outside without opportunities to rehydrate. Uh, heat causes increases in diarrheal disease because of the difficulty in maintaining food and water sanitation during hot weather. Heat interrupts sleep and sleep deprivation in turn is a predisposing factor in a number of cardiovascular and neurologic conditions. Heat is associated with abnormal birth outcomes like low birth weight and preterm birth. 
Uh, academic achievement in children drops when the weather is hotter. People become less physically active during hot weather, and of course, sedentary lifestyles are a risk factor for a number of other diseases. Workplace injuries rise predictably during hot weather, and workers are affected in another way, which is that work productivity decreases. So for workers, think of farm workers or factory workers who are dependent on their daily labor to feed themselves and their families. Heat waves offer uh, an indirect but very real threat. So the lesson here, and this is only from one pathway, this is heat, is that the impacts of planetary changes are extraordinarily complex and far reaching. And that is one of the lessons of planetary health. There's another lesson that heat exemplifies, and that has to do with equity. So this is a picture of household income in the US arrayed from low income here up to high income here. And the height of each column shows the size of the carbon footprint of people in that income category. What you can see is that wealthy people have much bigger carbon footprints than do poor people. And if you deconstruct that, it's because of higher consumption of food and housing and clothing and transportation and services. In fact, every aspect of an affluent life has a higher carbon footprint than every aspect of a poor life. And these are US data, but the same is true on a global scale, depicted a little bit differently. Here is a scale of the entire global population by uh, decile of income. And this, uh, I guess this is a, a gin and tonic glass here, shows the distribution of uh, carbon emissions by income category. And what you can see is that the top 10% uh, of wealth corresponds to about half the carbon emissions in the world all by way of saying that the highest income people are the biggest contributors to climate change and therefore to, among other outcomes, the heat waves I just talked about. But they aren't the ones who suffer the most. Uh, poor people suffer the most from the impacts of climate change. Here's one description. This is, uh, these are maps from Portland. This is the homeowner's loan corporation map from the 1930s, which shows redlining in Portland. The red areas were considered high risk because they were populated by people from minority backgrounds. This is a contemporary heat map from uh, Portland State showing that the hottest parts of the city overlie very nicely the areas that were previously redlined. Just one of the lines of evidence that's emerging showing that the vulnerability to the impacts of climate change, in this case heat, is highest among people who are poorest and most vulnerable. And that's true on a global level as well. Uh, these are called density equalizing cartograms. So the one at the top scales the size of a country according to its cumulative CO2 emissions over uh, 50 years from 1950 to 2000. You can see a big bloviated US, a big bloviated Europe, and a little vestigial looking South America, Africa, and South Asia reflecting that the carbon emissions were much higher in the affluent parts of the world. The bottom map, in contrast, shows the impacts of climate change, and you'll see that you have a bloviated Africa and South Asia and a tiny little North America and Europe, indicating that the impacts of climate change, in this case, malaria, malnutrition, diarrhea, and floods, a very small slice of the overall impacts, hit much harder on the poor. The lesson here, uh, and this is a universal planetary health lesson, planetary changes when we bring them about hit much harder on those who are vulnerable. 
on those who were poor and disenfranchised than on the wealthy. Another example in the energy domain comes from dams. Now, what do we think about dams? Well, this is a picture of greenhouse gas emissions from various energy sources. And what you'll see, and no surprise, is that coal is a very big source of greenhouse gas emissions. Oil and gas come next. And here is hydro, a very low source of greenhouse gas emissions. It's a clean energy. And no surprise that lots of dams have been built around the world. Uh, this is our neck of the woods, the Columbia River Basin. And you can see that between the red dots and the yellow dots, each one representing a dam, our basin is pretty well built out with dams. Around the world, uh, a similar trend continues. There are almost 3 million dams in the world. Only about 57,000 of them are sizable dams over 15 meters high. 3,500 of them are sources of energy. And another 3,700 hydroelectric dams are now planned or in construction. So we're on a, a boom of dam building. Uh, doubling, more than doubling since the newer ones are bigger, the amount of hydroelectric power uh, used in the world. That continues the trend of harnessing the world's rivers. So um, among those planetary changes is the fact that the vast majority of the world's rivers are no longer free flowing. And that is a trend that's continuing. Now for all the benefits of clean energy, uh, there are some disbenefits as well. And those will be seen uh, increasingly with this, this round of dam construction, uh, yellow under construction, red plan throughout Asia and throughout South America. A good example is the Three Gorges Dam, the huge dam in China completed about 15 years ago, displacing 20 coal-fired power plants. That's a pretty good thing. Uh, but one and a quarter million people were displaced from along the river as the dam was built. Uh, only limited research was done on the impacts on those people, but we now have pretty good evidence of profound mental health consequences from the displacement of those people. And displacement is only one of the downsides of dams. Against the benefits of clean electricity, a dependable water supply, irrigation, flood control, and recreation on the uh, lakes above the dams, we get changes in river hydrology, we get altered fluxes of a number of elements. We get methane formed at lake bottoms, which uh, bubbles up, toxin formation. And in terms of human health risks that are direct, schistosomiasis malaria risk rise, populations are displaced, and dams may collapse. So the planetary health concept here is the concept of trade-offs, that we often have to balance competing demands in order to make optimal decisions to protect both the planet and people. There's another lesson to be learned here, and that is future thinking. Each of these benefits of dams, clean electricity, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is liable to change with climate change. In fact, in, in the American Southwest, with the long-term drought that we're experiencing, a lot of the benefits of the major dams on the Colorado River are now diminishing or about to disappear in some cases as the water levels in Lake Mead and other lakes, the impoundments uh, drops, uh, coming close to the point where they can't generate electricity anymore. So think in terms of trade-offs, think in terms of the future implications of the things we do now, some more planetary health lessons. Let's move from energy to food, and let me use as an example, nuts. Now our nutritional colleagues are very interested in nut consumption because there is some evidence that eating nuts is good for health. In fact, a fair amount of evidence. 
Here's a, a picture of some of the papers um, reporting studies on particular kinds of nuts, almonds, walnuts, and particular health outcomes, cardiovascular health, healthier microbiomes. So there's a lot of literature here. And there are some interesting research questions that come out of these observations. What components of nuts promote health? Can we make nuts even healthier than they are? What dose of nuts should we recommend to people? How to persuade more people to eat more nuts? I got onto this during a conversation a couple of years ago with a colleague who excitedly reported to me that he had completed an epidemiologic study and discovered that eating nuts during pregnancy is good for the health of the fetus. Uh, that, that's the mom eating nuts, good for the fetal, for fetal health. And he uh, recommended uh, as a result that pregnant moms ought to eat more nuts. And I said to him, well, isn't there another question to think about? Uh, are you sure you want to be recommending that? Do we have enough nuts to feed people? And where do nuts come from? He hadn't thought about that at all. So I pose this question to you now, where do nuts come from? Well, everybody knows the answer. They come from the shelves of convenience stores and little bags like this. But if you follow them upstream, you might find yourself in a beautiful almond orchard like this or in a beautiful walnut orchard like this. And chances are, if you did, you would be in the US because look at this picture of global almond production. The blue is the US. With global walnut production, the green is China, the blue is the US. So a good portion of those come from the US as well. Where in the US? Well, here's a picture of nut growth in the US. Each blue dot represents a large amount of nut growth. And you can see that it's mostly in the Central Valley of California, in this case, both for walnuts and for almonds. Now, that's great. We know that California is a big agricultural producer. Is this a good place to grow nuts? Well, this is a picture of the water footprint of various foods. And you can see that beef is very high. Beef is a very high contributor to CO2 emissions, but it's also a very heavy user of water to produce beef. And next on the list is nuts. Nuts are a very thirsty crop. So we're growing this very thirsty crop in California. And we know that California has been suffering from water scarcity for the last some years, which makes it seem like a mismatch, doesn't it? Not only that, if you think forward, California is predicted to have more chaotic weather extremes, meaning unreliable levels of rainfall for the farmers, more severe droughts and less water from snowmelt. Not only that, let's think about the pesticide use on crops. This is a picture of the use of pesticides on walnut crops in California from that state's tracking program. You can see that the red indicating fairly heavy use is pretty much ubiquitous where walnuts are grown. Walnuts require a fairly heavy use of pesticides. And looking forward, the projections are that climate change will likely increase farmers' needs to use pesticides. And, and that's because many weed crops grow more uh, exuberantly under climate change scenarios. Many pest species, the insects, grow more exuberantly. And so with the higher temperatures and so on that come with climate change, changes both in pest ecology and declines in pesticide efficacy, we can expect to see more pesticides used. So here's a crop that we're growing uh, in, in arguably exactly the wrong place, using a resource that is becoming increasingly scarce, heading down a road where we are likely to have to contaminate the crop more with time if we keep this up. 
And that leads to uh, some very profound questions about nuts. Uh, is a cardioprotective diet in general sustainable? And can we grow nuts at the levels that nutritional advice might suggest we should? So again, a matter of trade-offs and a matter of future thinking grounded in this case in ecology and hydrology, all having implications for the advice we give on human health. Well, I have gone on for a while. My next example was going to be on plastics, but I think I'm going to skip ahead and not talk about plastics because I'd rather finish up and talk about some of the bigger issues around all of this. So I think just from the few examples I did work, looking at climate change and looking at the way we make uh, hydroelectric energy and the implicit costs in that and the difficulties of sustainable and healthy food. This is pretty grim stuff. Um, it may drive you to despair. And in fact, there is a lot of push to feel despair these days. Uh, there's a lot of voices calling for um, uh, pessimism, the so-called doomers. Professor Jim Bendel, the author of this famous paper, tells us bluntly, there will be a near-term collapse in society. He has no doubt about it. Professor Guy McPherson tells us, hope is a mistake and a lie. Clinging to hope is a mistake and promulgating hope is a lie. Uh, in fact, there's a whole genre called climate disaster porn. It's apocalyptic, it's scary, and it paves the way to despair. Popular media increasingly describe this despair, especially in young people. It goes by various names, eco-anxiety, solastalgia, pre-traumatic stress. You may have heard some of these feelings in your patients if you've discussed with them challenges like climate change. You may even have struggled with some of these feelings yourself. One of the most telling indicators is young people's plans to start families, one of the most elemental expressions of uh, hope in humans. More and more media accounts are describing young people who decide not to have children uh, having lost hope that the world will be a safe place in which to raise children. We don't have a lot of quantitative data, but uh, here's an exception. This is a recently published study. The blue bars show the level of concern over the carbon footprint that bringing a child into the world has. But I want you to look at the orange bars from this uh, survey. It asked the respondents, uh, how concerned are you about the impacts of climate change on your children? And you can see that 96% uh, or so were extremely or very concerned. There were some heartbreaking quotations that these authors reported. One 27-year-old woman said, I feel like I can't in good conscience bring a child into this world. A uh, 40-year-old mother says, tragically, I regret having my kids. So there is a lot of despair out there. But we health professionals know a thing or two about caring for people who are facing grim news, people who are anxious or depressed or hopeless. And so I wanna end by exploring the role of hope and what we as health professionals can do both to propel hope and also to tackle these global challenges. Uh, I wanna suggest that hope is a justifiable and important thing for us to do replacing despair with hope. So what is hope? Well, this is one of the classic definitions from a, a psychologist who was uh, one of the founders of the study of hope. 
the perceived capability to derive pathways to desired goals and motivate oneself via agency thinking to use those pathways. It's a little jargony, but if you deconstruct it, there are three components to hope. Having a goal, having a plan, that's what he calls a pathway, and having the ability to act, feeling empowered, that's the sense of agency. Hope is different than optimism. Environmental thinker David Orr says, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Hopeful people are actively engaged in defying or changing the odds. Optimism leans back, puts its feet up, and wears a confident look. So intrinsic to the idea of hope is action. I want to suggest that we should be about propelling hope, and I've got three reasons for that. First, hopeful people feel better, and if we are in the business of making people feel better, then we should care about hope. Uh, we have a lot of literature suggesting that uh, hopeful people handle stress better, they live longer, they have greater cognitive flexibility, they function better. And when hopelessness is studied as a variable, it turns out that hopelessness predicts all of the health outcomes shown on the left. In fact, hopelessness is a stronger predictor of suicide than is depression. So hope is good for people. Second, hope leads to action. And that's important at a time like this, when we are facing the emergency I talked about before, we need action, not uh, indifference or withdrawal, which are the things that tend to flow from hopelessness. And finally, hope is empirically justified. There are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Some people argue that we've lost this fight and we should just be preparing for the end, but actually the evidence doesn't show that at all. And there's a lot of basis to feel positive. Here are nine reasons to feel hopeful. I could have given you more, but the slide would have been too crowded. Solutions are in hand. And let me show you a bit of planetary health research to illustrate that. Going back to the subject of dams. This is the Diama Dam built along the Senegal River. Not a major dam, it's 18 meters high. It's helpful in irrigation in the area, but it is high enough to stop the ocean waters from moving back upstream with the tide. So it created a freshwater habitat upstream from the dam. And that turned out to be a great habitat for freshwater snails. Now snails, as you may recall, are part of the life cycle of the schistosome. And so no surprise when the dam was built in 1986, snails proliferated, schistosomiasis exploded along the river and the rates of disease were, were uh, are horrible for the people living in villages along the river. But a solution emerged and it was the result of what we now think of as planetary health research, combining uh, hydrology and economics and plant ecology and disease ecology. The solution was prawns. The people in the river began growing prawns. Prawns eat the snails, dramatically reducing the incidence of schistosomiasis. And by the way, providing a source of dietary protein for the people living along the river and a cash crop, so a source of income and economic development. So this solutions-oriented research, we know that a lot of solutions like this are at hand and evidence is supporting more and more. That's really good news. Second, technology is advancing incredibly fast. Uh, the upper panel here shows battery storage. Uh, we need batteries to transition from fossil electricity to renewable electricity, and that technology is advancing very fast. Even difficult technologies here at the bottom uh, showing biofuels used in aviation, moving from cow manure, 
through some organic chemistry right onto a tanker at an aircraft. Uh, this technology is advancing very fast too. The economics are improving. The best example is the dramatic price reduction in batteries and in solar photovoltaic, such that uh, PV electricity is now cheaper than fossil electricity almost everywhere in the world. Policy is maturing. This is a picture of countries of the world that are committed to getting to net zero carbon emissions. Some are there already, Bhutan and Suriname, go, go. 12 countries are legally obligated to get there and many other countries are in active discussion. Our country has had a, a checkered history in tackling the climate crisis, but President Biden announced uh, a, a very ambitious target on Earth Day. Uh, as you all know from following the news these days, the uh, legislation hangs in the balance at this very moment. But the political winds are shifting. What was notable to me was that on Earth Day, when Biden made that announcement, he stood with coal miners who had been long uh, supporters of producing more coal, but they announced on that day that instead of fighting for coal, they would accept its demise and they would fight for job retraining instead. At the local level, cities around the world are competing for bragging rights to get to net zero. Across the US, we're seeing really interesting and inspiring local initiatives as cities, towns, and counties eliminate their fossil fuel infrastructure. And as they put in post-carbon uh, infrastructure such as EV charging stations and solar electricity. Activism is blossoming around the world and that's inspiring. One of the strongest sources of hope for me personally, that activism in turn drives those policy changes. Public opinion is shifting. This is a picture of public belief that uh, climate change is happening. And you can see that with a couple of uh, excursions downward, it's basically been on an upward trend. A majority of Americans now believe that climate change is real. In fact, on the last election day, Fox News surveyed voters coming out of the polling boxes, 70% favored increased government spending on green and renewable energy. Culture change is possible. These are posters from the Second World War from the US and the UK. What you'll see is that they urge people to use less electricity, um, don't, uh, buy local foods, don't waste food, don't drive around unnecessarily, don't buy stuff unnecessarily, all of the planetary health advice we would give people today. And you know what? The public rose to the challenge, made those changes. I believe we can do it again. And results are emerging. This is a picture of the growth of renewable energy, mostly hydro so far, but wind and solar are growing very fast. Uh, so that's understated by this picture rapid growth trajectory. Many parts of the economy are making the change. This is a picture of the various auto companies that have committed to switching from internal combustion to electric vehicles. And lastly, there's a really good news story under what we need to do, and that is the co-benefits. So here are some uh, elements of the green economy, clean energy, meaning renewables, well-designed cities, meaning cities that are walkable and bikeable, cities that have enough density to support transit, cities with plenty of green space, with energy efficient buildings, healthy diets, meaning less reliance on animal protein and more reliance on uh, plants because producing plants has a much smaller carbon footprint than producing animal protein, and green chemistry. <clears throat> Alongside it, here's a list of the major health challenges we face and that you see every day in clinic. 
we are aiming for less heart and lung disease and less cancer, better mental health, less infectious disease, fewer injuries and healthier child development. We would love to achieve these goals. Well, it turns out that we have very strong evidence that clean energy delivers all of these goals, much of it, although not all of it, through better air quality. We have very strong evidence that well-designed cities deliver these health goals. Same thing for healthy diets and same thing for green chemistry, uh, replacing non-biodegradable polluting chemicals with safer chemicals. So a lot of reasons to feel hopeful. Last question, what do we do as health professionals to make this all happen? Well, each of you is more than just one person. You're a private citizen, you're an institutional leader, you're a trusted community voice, a researcher and a clinician. What can we do? What can you do wearing each of those hats? As a private citizen, you can make decisions in your own life for you and your family about the ways you eat, travel, consume. As a clinician, how do you care for and counsel your patients? Uh, even if you don't want to talk about climate change in clinic, that can feel awkward. If you ride your bike to work and leave your bike leaning against the wall of the office, that sends a signal. Uh, you can recommend lifestyle changes that are both good for your patient and good for the planet. As an institutional leader, you can help make your hospital green. As a researcher, you can incorporate climate change into your research, both what you study and the way you do the research. For example, how often you fly to meetings. And as a trusted community voice, you can speak out. Now, this one's important. This is a picture of trusted professions, and you can see that nurses and doctors are at the very top of the list. This is a consistent finding over the years and across the world. It's of interest that at the bottom we see members of Congress, car salespeople, and telemarketers in that order. So speaking out is a privilege and a responsibility. How do we do it? Well, often too many of us have defined planetary changes as out of scope. Some of us have recoiled from it because it's so complex and uncertain. And when we talk about it, we just talk about, I don't know, it's too complicated. But you won't be surprised that I'm advocating a third approach. Simple, clear messages repeated often from a variety of trusted sources. Here's a recommendation for how to talk about climate change. Very simple. It's real. It's us. Experts agree. It's bad and there's hope. So here is the hope message underlying a simple message about climate change and lots of ways that we can speak out. We can write letters to the editor or uh, in modern equivalent, we can tweet. We can give testimony when legislation is being considered at the state or local or federal level. Uh, we can give uh, talks either uh, at, at the Rotary, at your church, a TED talk, sometimes even public action. In uh, the ways to propel hope based on what we know clinically, tell the truth. It never does not to tell the truth. Acknowledge grief. We know this from uh, terminal care. Articulate a vision of success. Remember that having a goal is key to hope. Identify pathways toward that vision so that people have things they can do. Empower people to take action. Support those young activists. We need them. Cultivate solidarity. Uh, working together is much more satisfying than working alone. And make room for joy. Actually doing the work against climate change, working for biodiversity, working for cleaner communities is a very joyful thing to do. 
So to summarize, we've disrupted our planet in a lot of ways, uh, and that has implications for health and equity. I've introduced the framework of planetary health as a way to understand those challenges, and I've emphasized that we need to nurture hope as we tackle those challenges, and that we health professionals have a key role to play in taking on what is, I think, the challenge of our time. Thank you very much for your attention. Wow, Dr. Pumpkin, thank you for a sweeping and inspiring presentation. Um, much covered. Uh, early in the presentation, I'll, I'll call out um, one comment from an audience participant. It all feels pretty damn overwhelming <laughs> during the, the initial part of the discussion of dams. And, and I think, thank you for ending on so many very like construct, constructive thoughts of a path forward. Um, super key. Here I have a few questions. Um, first off, uh, has there been any data showing that the shift to virtual healthcare has decreased medicine's carbon footprint? That's a great question. And, and I think that's one of the positive outcomes of, of the pandemic. Yes, telehealth does reduce the carbon footprint of healthcare. Uh, and we're beginning to see studies in particular lines of care from dialysis to mental health care showing that not only is the carbon footprint down, but efficacy and safety are good. But we need to prove that for each kind of telehealth. As we do that, it's, it's a great way to think about the healthcare we deliver. Is it safe? Is it efficacious? And is it sustainable? That third piece hasn't been typical, but I think there are whole lines of research that are looking to, uh, to figure out ways to deliver healthcare that meet all three criteria. Another word on healthcare, though, at the same time we figure out ways to deliver healthcare in, in climate friendly, environmentally friendly ways, that's going to mean looking up at the supply chain, producing pharmaceuticals, buying products, sourcing food that are all environmentally friendly. It also means reducing unneeded care. So let's look critically at the care we deliver. And if a particular line of treatment doesn't help our patients, Let's not do it because that's a good way to reduce the carbon footprint and let's reduce administrative waste and let's think more about prevention because really if people don't get sick in the first place and we reduce demand on healthcare services, that too is a way to reduce the carbon footprint. So lots of virtuous lines of thinking, you know, study ways to deliver healthcare in lower carbon footprint ways, uh, implement ways to need to deliver less healthcare by keeping people healthier and root out waste in the system. All of those are effective ways to keep our footprint smaller. Fantastic, many thanks. And our audience is likely to remember that just last week as part of our high value care series, um, we had a speaker discussing um, ways to help eliminate waste. So fantastic. Um, this may be a bit of a rhetorical question, but I'll invite any comments. Why aren't the coal miners telling Joe Manchin they want to support the climate package? Do we need to add job retraining to the bill? You know, there, there's been a lot of press lately on, on why uh, Senator Manchin is blocking progress on the climate bill. And, you know, some people speculate, follow the money. He, he is the largest recipient of uh, fossil fuel donations in the Senate. Some people think he's just stuck in the past when, when West Virginia was heavily dependent economically on coal. Turns out West Virginia is uh, the most vulnerable state to climate-induced flooding of any state. So you would think that he would uh, see the writing on the wall and, and, and care about fighting climate change, but um, I'm afraid I can't possibly get inside his head. <laughs> so 
we, we do, we, we really need to pass uh, an ambitious climate bill at the national level. Indeed we do. Uh, a question, how does recycle, repair, and reuse fit in our disposable economy? Well, it, it's, it's a great set of approaches to reducing our use of energy and materials. If we use things longer and reuse them when we can and consume less, uh, we've got kind of a disposable mindset. And I think part of what we need to change is, is that mindset. Uh, my parents were depression era kids and boy, they, they for the rest of their lives, they were averse to waste. So I think as, as technologies and products evolve that enable us to waste less and throw away less, that's a really positive thing. I, I One of the things my wife and I have done is we, we buy, we have these, um, I think they're made of silicon. They're, they're thick bags and we store food in the fridge in those bags. We use them again and again. We haven't bought a plastic bag for a year now. Uh, so it, it's actually possible to find products that, that don't put you out, but that make you waste a lot less. So let's follow our young people. I think this is a popular thing among young people. Yeah, absolutely. Real tangible examples. Um, here, a question. Do you favor using taxes as a tool for change? Well, the economists tell us that putting a price on carbon is one of the most effective and efficient ways of reducing carbon combustion. So. Whether you call that a tax or a fee, uh, we know that that is one of the tools in the toolbox that really works well. Um, one of the sets of policies that has been uh, talked about is that if you put a price on carbon and thereby inflict heavier economic damage, relatively speaking, on poor people, you take the revenues and you return that in the form of social services and other supports for those at the bottom of the economic ladder. So. Yes, I do favor economic levers. Uh, I'm no economist, but I read economics and uh, they're very effective, but we need to be sure that they don't have unanticipated, unequitable impacts. And so we can build that into our tax policy. Right, I wanna be respectful of our time. We are um, already at 9.02 and so much to discuss. Um, perhaps I'll pose this last question as, as a bit of a counterpoint, looking at tax governmental solutions versus individual action. Um, this question may have been prompted specifically by the example of avoiding personal use of plastic bags. Um, can <clears throat> individuals really make enough change? Some say it is, quote, hopeless unless countries and big business make necessary changes. You know, it's a really interesting debate. And, and, and what the questioner says is exactly right. There's an argument where some people say don't focus so much on individual action because we need system change. I think it's both and. And I think it's a false distinction. In fact, the two reinforce each other because people who take action in their personal lives feel more empowered to work for system change. And the system change uh, in many ways is about personal choices. If we all choose to buy an electric vehicle and we all choose to eat less meat, that does make a difference. So personal choices matter and system change is absolutely necessary. So let's do both. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Frumkin, for an extraordinary talk, and may we all leave with some hope. Thank, thank you. you very much. It was an honor to be with you today. Everybody have a good rest of the day. Thanks so much. That was extraordinary. <laughs>